Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Our sermon series uh, that we've been going through these past few weeks now has been titled The Divine Debrief, uh, The Gospel and the Age of COVID-19. And we've kind of been asking ourselves, what the heck happened over the past year and a half? Uh, Are there things in the scriptures, are there things in our faith that can help us understand and navigate and and sort of uh, debrief and process all of the various things we've been through in this past season? We've looked at politics and race and the plagues of the Bible. We've looked at depression and mental illness. We've looked at anger and our passions. And we've looked at the way we use our language to separate ourselves into righteous camps. And the trajectory of this series so far has been a little downward. And I think you've noticed that. We've been talking about things and it kind of feels like maybe we're getting low over the past few weeks. This week I want to start to, to level that off um, and talk about not just here's what happened in the past and all the hard things that happened, but also here's what the Bible has as words of hope and encouragement for us in the midst of that. Right? Because we can say and study and say, okay, all these hard matters we're experiencing now, it's like, okay, well, it's good that the Bible talks about them and addresses them. That doesn't make them any less hard, though. And so what I hope to do starting today is to begin to sort of pull ourselves um, not towards a look and say, okay, well, hard things have always been with us, but also hope has been with us as well. And that's where we're going to go this morning. And so today's sermon is a sermon about humility which I think is the chief evidence of, uh, of a Christian faith, a lively Christian faith, is, is uh, when I run into someone who's really humble. And, you know, that's not to say if you're not humble, you're not a Christian, right? Being Christian is about who you believe in, not how much you believe in that person per se. Um, we're not sort of judging people by the quality of their belief, but the more, I, the, the more humble I find somebody, the more I, I think that this gospel has sunk down into their core and into their spirit. If there were any virtue that I would say is sort of uniquely and especially Christian, I would say it's humility. And so I want to offer a reflection on humility this morning, which, again, I think is the chief of all Christian attitudes. I want to speak about it in three different ways. I want to talk about the blessing of humility. I want to talk about the, the, the impossibility of humility. And then I want to talk about the source of humility. I'll talk about those three things this morning, the blessing the impossibility, and the source of humility. And by doing so, I think we're going to start to to transition and say, okay, well, there may be better days ahead for us here um, as we reflect on the days past. So that's where I want to go this morning. So let's start off with the blessing of humility. Let's talk about the blessing of humility. Right? We had Luke 18 was our reading this morning, and Jesus um, is sharing a parable that is is well known to people who've been in church for a while. Two men go to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And Jesus is setting us up. He's, he's baiting us here um, as we, we get into this parable because 
Um, Jesus wants to show that it's not the outward signs of a person that make them holy or good or righteous. It's the heart underneath. And so he's setting us up for, for, uh, to pull the rug out from under us because the listeners who are hearing this parable for the first time, the setup makes them think one way. They think about Pharisees. Pharisees, this denomination within Judaism, very concerned with keeping the law of Moses. They were very interested in things like purity and, and holiness and being good people. And these Pharisees are famous because what they did was they said, here's God's law right here. Let's make some extra rules and laws and build a fence around that. And that way, if we just obey these extra rules, then we won't accidentally break one of God's laws. And so they were very concerned uh, with doing the right thing, being the right people. This would have been an upright person in the community. When you hear people talk about Pharisees in the ancient world, if you brought that into modern day world, you would think of someone who like goes to church raising a wholesome family. They flossed every day, right? They, they save all the recycling in Ligonier because we don't have recycling. And then once a week, they load it in their car and take it to Latrobe and recycle it. And then on top of all of that, you know, they buy subs from all the groups fundraising on the diamond every, doesn't matter if they want a sub or not, right? They buy one anyway because they want to support the local charities, right? That's, that's the wholesome kind of image Jesus wants to invoke here. So that's the Pharisee. And then there's the tax collector, of course. The tax collector is the polar opposite in their cultural minds. Tax collectors were like enforcers for the mafia. They would come in and shake people down for their tax money, but they would shake them down for more and skim off the top for themselves. They chose to work for the Roman Empire, uh, the big, bad, oppressive army. They rejected the, the, the sort of needs of their national ethnic um, uh, people group. They were traitors politically, and um, they denied their Jewish citizenship, and then they got paid well for doing it. These were people who were theological and political uh, enemies. They had joined the dark side, as it were. And so as Jesus pairs them together and brings them to the temple, the crowds around him are thinking, okay, a good guy and a bad guy go to the temple. But then Jesus flips the script. You can tell from the prayers who's really the good guy. Um, the Pharisee takes the occasion to boast, full of pride and arrogance, and the tax collector, on the other hand, is remorseful and has a sincere faith. And the crowds, of course, understand very quickly, oh, the tables have been turned. Of course, the tax collector is the one who is close to God. Jesus says it is the tax collector who goes home justified before God, which is just a fancy way of saying that God approves, acknowledges, and receives the prayers of this tax collector. Jesus wants us to see that a humble attitude is what God wants from us. This is all over the Psalms, right? Psalm 51, right? A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Our Psalm for today, Psalm 25, King David said that God leads the humble, God teaches the humble. Uh, and, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense when you think about it, doesn't it? Because humble people um, receive teaching and leadership in a way that proud people don't. Humble people are the, the clay on the potter's wheel that God is molding and forming and pinching and folding into the clay pot for his use. Humble people are the soft soil in which the gospel can land and grow and become something beautiful and different. Um, Martin Luther had a very clever turn of phrase on this. He said this, uh, the German Protestant theologian, he said this, 
God created the world out of nothing. So as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. I thought that was clever, right? God created the world out of nothing. So if we are nothing as well, he can make something of us. And so um, that's how we start today. Humility, um, being humbled by the life circumstances means we are blessed by God. But there's something about humble people that open them up in a fresh way to a relationship with the divine that, that, that just doesn't work if you are not humble, if you are indeed proud. Humble people are in the right mindset, they're in the right space to be blessed and used by the God of the universe. So that is the blessing of humility. Humility opens you up to the work of God. But here is the conundrum. Um, and this is the second part of the sermon here, because this sort of thing is impossible to manufacture on your own. That humility is, in some sense, impossible. Um, there's a part of me that wishes I could give you three steps and say, just follow these steps, go home this week, do these three things, and then next week we'll gather together again, and we'll all be a little more humble, and we'll be all a little more receptive to the will of God. I wish I could do that, but I can't. That's impossible. It's not how this thing works. We can try to be more humble, but then we're going to spend more time thinking about ourselves. We're going to do the navel-gazing, right? And we're to be gazing at our navel, we're to be focused on our, our will and our self-improvement. And the more we are focused on our self-improvement, the less humble we're actually going to be. Um, because when we read the parable, right, of the Pharisee and the tax collector here, there's this temptation to identify with the tax collector. And we say things like, oh, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. He's so proud and arrogant. I am a humble person like the tax collector. And I say my prayers with a broken heart and a, a deep sense of woundedness and a complete dependence on God. It's the same thing, but backwards, right? It doesn't work that way. Um, but there's something else that is the source of humility besides our own willpower, right? There's this old Buddhist proverb that gets to the heart of the matter. And I know Buddhist proverbs in the Christian church, but just follow me here. Um, the story goes of a Buddhist monk who was deeply concerned that he would accidentally step on an insect. Um, and of course, in, in Buddhism, insects are part of the divine order. And so even stepping on an insect and accidentally killing it could bring you negative karma. And the monk did not want negative karma. And so he came up with a solution. He said this, what I'm going to do so that I don't step on an insect is I am going to um, get myself a litter, right? You know, those boxes that have the poles on it, right? And you can sit in the box and four strong people come and lift you on their shoulder and hike you around everywhere. He said, if I get these four people to lift me up and walk me around, I will never step on a bug. And therefore, I will never have bad karma. The irony being, of course, that he now is responsible for eight feet touching the ground that could accidentally step on a bug, as opposed to just his own two feet. It's a Buddhist proverb that illustrates that our search for righteousness might not actually solve our problem. It might just magnify it. It might just magnify it. Uh, and when we try to be more humble and work towards that end, the same thing happens. C.S. Lewis, of all people, he understood this. He said this, A man is never so proud as when striking an attitude of humility. Yes, pride is a perpetual temptation, but we shouldn't be too worried about it. Because as long as one knows one is proud, he's safe from the worst forms of pride. So that's an impossible thing to say, hey, you should, yins should be more humble in Pittsburghese, right? Yins should be more humble. But that doesn't work. How does one actually become humble? What is the source of humility? How can we, if we can't manufacture it, we can't work towards it, like is it just genetics? Or do you have to be born in the Midwest somewhere? 
Like, how does one actually cultivate an attitude of humility? Well, here's my experience. Take it for what it is, but here's my experience. My experience is that humility comes from the people who tend to suffer the most in life. That's, that's my take on it. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it really, you do just have to be born in a small Midwest town to be humble. But, but I, I think the reality is that people who have struggled with their own powerlessness and their own failure, um, and they've recognized it and they've, they've internalized it, they tend to be some of the most humble people I have ever met. Um, I have been in 12-step recovery rooms, and these people are wrestling with their inability to control their lives. They've all come to an agreement that whatever their addiction is, it has made their lives completely unmanageable. Some of the most humble people I think I've ever met are in church basements and 12-step meetings. Uh, I've watched people whose careers have completely fallen apart underneath them. I've watched people whose professional careers bottomed out, and they are doing something else right now, but they have been humbled in the process. I've seen humility flow from people whose romantic hopes and aspirations have collapsed, and there's so much grief and there's so much heartbreak there, but for whatever reason, it's been t- turned into something that is a humble humility and a total love for other people who also have romantic frustrations. It's in school-age kids. The one time the all-star student fails a project or flunks a test, it's humbling for them and it actually produces character in a way that success might not. I found it in, in, in college dropouts, in divorcees, in paraplegics, in failed church planters, uh, parents of special children, estra- special needs children, estranged grandparents, people who have committed vehicular homicide. These are folks who I have found in my own life to be among the most humble. Even if someone, right, has all the outward appearances of success, they've got a beautiful family, they've got lots of money, they drive decent cars, somewhere in the past, somewhere in the history of this person, there is this deep manifestation of suffering and powerlessness. Um, there's an abuse of a, par- a parent, there's a stillborn child, there's a forgiven affair. There's something there. Um, I've yet to meet a humble person who didn't experience some sort of great loss or tragedy in their life. That's just what I've noticed. And that's why I want to talk about humility today, because I think if the past year and a half has given us anything, it's an occasion to be humbled. Because we have all been confronted in the past year and a half with some level of powerlessness. Um, and as we've been going through this series, and I've been talking about all of these extra sort of external things, um, like politics and power and uh, anger and everything, you've, you've quietly shared with me, you're like, hey, you know, hey, you know, careful now. You're, you're getting a little close to home here. Whether you're recognizing um, that anger is something that is a part of your life that in a way that makes you uncomfortable or that you dump, jumped in on the, the, the deep dive of the political end to avoid some of the things going on in your life, whether your mental illness or your passions swept you off your feet, you came to recognize your own powerlessness over the past season. And so I want to ask you what you're going to do with that today. What will you do with this powerlessness, this sense of failure, this hard and suffering season? What are you going to do with all of that? I want to put that before you as a question for you and for me as well. What are we going to do with that? A couple of things you could do. You could pretend like nothing ever happened and keep going like everything is fine. Um, And you can do that, but I don't recommend it because there'll be something inside you that feels off and you're going to have a really difficult time and things won't be solved. Um, In Romans 12, 
Paul famously says that one of the things that the gospel does is it renews our minds, right? He says this, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That there's something about the Christian gospel that renews our mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And so part of what the gospel does uh, when we sort of begin to internalize it and have it be the core of our reality is it does make us think differently about the world around us. But the very next verse, the very next line, the very next thing that Paul says, the thing that, that is renewed in our minds should be this. Ready? So he says, your minds should be renewed so that you can understand God's will. In the very next verse, he says this. I say it to everyone among you to not think more highly of himself than he ought. He says the first way that this tangible expression of the Christian gospel changes us is that we reflect on our own selves and we get a more realistic understanding of who we are and what we bring to the table. Humility, friends, is how our minds are changed. Um, God wants you to have a sober and realistic view of yourself. And so if you're not doing the sort of faith-based reflection after this pandemic season, um, your mind is not being transformed by the gospel. Um, So you could go on pretending that you're the same person you were in February of 2020, um, but you would probably be fooling yourself. We've all been changed, and it's good for us to reflect on this. So, I mean, you could pretend that nothing has changed, but that would be silly. So the next thing you could do is you could reflect on your powerlessness and the hardship of this past season, and you could spiral into self-loathing if you wanted to. You could spiral into self-loathing, because it's easy to conflate um, uh, humility and self-loathing. They're they're both very similar emotions. And here's why that is, by the way. Um, Humility and self-loathing, they're very similar emotions because they both reflect a a lack of pride, right? That's why they're similar and why one can easily become the other if you're not careful. Because the the self-loathing person and the humble person have that in common. They're not proud people. Um, But but the problem with self-loathing is that it's still self-focused. It's still self-focused. Um, to sit around in frustration that you have not lived up to the ideal that you wish you had been, that you're not as perfect and as strong and as powerful as you wish you could be, um, that is not humility, right? That's vanity. Um, it's looking at yourself and wanting to be better and frustrated that you're not reaching that space. Um, there's an old adage that a number of pastors have used in their writing that gets to the heart of this matter. Rick Warren, Tim Keller being among them. And the adage is this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And so if we're coming to to these things and we're thinking about our own aspirations, our own ego, our own uh, self-regard, our own self-esteem, humble people just don't dwell on those things. And that's the difference here, right? Um, we're, we're looking to make sure that, that in the reflecting of the past year, we don't sort of self-flagellate ourselves and beat ourselves up. Because again, that's not humility. That's vanity. We're searching for something else. So what can we do? What can we do with the powerlessness and the failure we've experienced during this past year and a half? Well, let me conclude by um, plugging in to you with the source of humility. Um, it's not growing up in a Midwest town. <laughs> It's not something in your genetics. There's something else. Um, And it's outlined in our reading from Philippians chapter 2 today. Paul outlines for us what true true humanity looks like. It's not self-loathing. It's not sort of a lifelong spiritual triathlon where you just try really hard all the time. Um, True humility, friends, comes from being made in the image of Jesus. True humility 
is when God makes us to be like Jesus. I mean, here's what Paul says to a church, right? This is the church in Philippi. This is a church which is experiencing its own season of suffering and hardship. Our season was was pandemic and virus related. Theirs is sort of direct government persecution related. But in Philippians, um, Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also the interests of others. That's how our reading begins. So far, so good, right? That's just what Tim Keller and, and, and um, Rick Warren had said, right? Uh, about humility being focused on other people. But that's not where Paul ends. Paul keeps going. He says this. He says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And of course, he transitions into this famous part of Scripture, which talks about the humbling of Jesus, the great humbling of Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cosmic story of Jesus' friends is a story of great humility, because though he was God himself, there's a continual humbling that takes place in his life, right? Um, First he was God, and then he was a servant, or to be more appropriate to the Greek, he was a slave. Then he was a man, Then he was an obedient man, not just a free man who did his own thing, but an obedient man. Then he submitted to death, and it wasn't just any death, right? But it was the lowest death that a person could possibly experience in his day. Down, 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 Jesus goes in his life, in his ministry. His trajectory is down. And this is the same man, right? What does he say in our reading uh, today from Luke, right? Those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And so to paraphrase our quote from earlier, what we have is that Jesus Christ did not think less of himself, but he did think of himself less. And as a result, friends, our sins are forgiven, our homes in heaven are secure, and the God of heaven solidifies his benevolence for us. We are given the Holy Spirit. We are given a whole new life. And so the powerlessness and the failure we've experienced during COVID, that can't change that. That can't change that. All of the benefits and the blessings of heaven that we have received, my dear friends, the powerlessness we've experienced does not negate it. In fact, it might make us open once again to receiving it afresh. And so if all of the most important things of our life are being taken care of by a benevolent God, we might be able to start thinking less of ourselves. We might be able to think more of others. We might be just might be a little more humble. So I want to leave you with this thought, friends. As we come out of the pandemic season, we are more aware than ever of our own faults and our own powerlessness. Um, I want to give you a suggestion for you to pray. Um, I don't want you to pray, God, make me more humble, right? Uh, First off, when you say more humble, it implies you're a little humble to begin with, right? And you're like, ah, that's not a very humble prayer. God, make me more humble. It's a little too navel-gazing, a little too try-hard, maybe a little too self-loathing, uh, maybe a little too proud. Why don't we try praying a prayer like this instead? God, make me more like Jesus. Try that prayer instead. Right? The scripture says that he saved us and we are being conformed into the image of his son. That's in Romans chapter 8. And so it is perfectly good and right and true that we should pray, God, make us more like Jesus. And it's a great prayer because, first off, it's a confession that we're not like Jesus. That's a good biblical idea. 
Second thing is an acknowledgement that we're powerless to change that, right? But we need prayer so that God would do this for us because we can't do it ourselves. And the third thing is that if God does indeed graciously answer it, um, we will find that we are more humbled and more concerned for others than we previously were. And so if this past season has taught us anything, friends, it's that we're not like Jesus. We're not slow to anger. We're not free from our inner passions like he is. We are weighed down by our illnesses, both mental and spiritual and, and physical. We are ready to cut off those who are different from us so that we feel good and righteous. But that, friends, is not Jesus. And maybe that sobering and humbling, that sobering reality will make you a little more humble this morning. And so, Father God, I pray now that you would make us all more like Jesus. Amen. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Lay down in grief. Open the keys. Fell on that day. Firstborn of the slain. The man Jesus Christ lay. Death in his grave. Pennsylvania.